you know, when they go to the the island of pleasure or whatever. Pleasure Island. Uh as it's also known. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, a movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are recording from San Diego, California. And Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we are going to be talking about the films uh, Pinocchio, the Disney remake. It was just dropped on Disney Plus a couple weeks ago, or uh, what, last weekend? It's relatively so, new, yeah. right? Yeah. By Robert Zemeckis and the end of the podcast for our streaming homework we are going to talk about the romantic comedy I Want You Back which is a prime original that came out back in February but we didn't catch it at that time so we're going to we're going to kind of go over that. We fucked up, Keith. What do you mean? So, last episode we had a long discussion about fandoms that have popped up post the year 2000. Oh, yeah. And I thought we we basically covered all of our corners of fandom as, that I was aware of. Okay, what did we forget? There was one that I thought was glaringly obvious that I for- remembered after we stopped recording. Okay. So just to have it on the record, we can have a mini discussion, which I cannot contribute much to because I've never watched it. But I think Avatar The Last Airbender slash The Legend of Korra is deeply important to people who are about five to ten years younger than us. Hey, I guess. I, I don't know. I feel like our conversation, we didn't really... We didn't really stroll towards uh, anime, and I do consider Avatar: The Last Airbender to be anime adjacent. For I sure, know, I know it's it, it's kind of a weird fusion. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because I, I, you know, I think if we're talking that, uh, you know, like in America, especially, there's a lot of like animes that didn't discover get discovered till later, so. Like a lot of anime American fan bases are probably skew a little younger than in the the country of origin, um, right? Because a lot of times, like in the case of the stuff that we watched on Toonami, like Dragon Ball Z or Gundam yeah. or whatever, um, all of those things were retrofitted and like edited for content and then redubbed about a good six to ten years yeah, after yeah. the so fact. So, like, Dragon Ball Z, for instance, I you know, I think is a huge fandom now. That yeah, it kind of keeps popping exist. up. Yeah, it, it's, it does a little bit. But, um, but yeah, so uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, you're right. There are the people who like it do love it. Um, Hardcore. Now, this is my reasoning for why I think it deserves a special identification beyond just anime writ large. 
Okay. And not just because there's so much going on in anime, and I've never really been an anime person, so I it's hard for me to like fully know what's going on over on that corner of geekdom. Yeah, I mean, you have a hard enough time keeping up with American TV. For sure. So, you know, whatever I know of anime is usually secondhand by what I see online or what I hear people talking about or whatever. Sure. Um, or, you know, what's being sold at the front counter of, you know, whatever comic book store. Whereas things like Naruto or One Punch Man or Bleach or, you know, whatever, name an anime that's come out since the year 2000 or as you know, Death Note, whatever. Those are all very, very popular, but they seem to have these like quick rise and fall in popularity. Like, have you ever done the thing where you go to uh, Google and you like look up the analytics on like specific search topics no, because I have other things to do, but sure. <laughs> so I, you can I do that. You can just look up a search about. topic and oh. it'll show you like how, like on a graph, like when things peak and whatever, um, based upon search history. I would imagine with a lot of those other ones, it's like a quick rise and fall of maybe a year or two years. But with... With uh, Last Airbender and then Legend of Korra that came out after, that seems to be like a staple of people's childhood in a way that more like something like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Transformers was for our generation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. And, you know, uh, it's... And I do think, you know, probably a big part of that difference is that, um, you know, it was made by Nickelodeon, right? Uh, so it, it was an it. American yeah. studio that, you know, created it and, and everything like that. I'm sure they, you know, I'm sure a lot of the animation was done overseas or whatever, but um, but that's the case for most American cartoons. Right, and I think it didn't have... It didn't have that problem with other, that a lot of IPs have where they just kind of keep running it until they run it into the ground. Or it yeah. changes hands over creative uh, heads enough that it's unrecognizable by the time you get to like season seven or whatever. It's, it's somewhat contained in that anime type way. Um, so it kind of tells a full arc story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't disagree with you. I just... Uh, I mean, I I, a, like I said, I've yeah. never watched it. But I know so many people for whom that is like hollowed ground. Yeah, that's fair. I've heard I anybody who watched that show was like into it. So uh, yeah, I think that's fair. I think that makes sense. I'm just throwing that out there because I felt like we have a sorely missed from our list. Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up before we head into our first uh, movie news segment, uh, I guess this is kind of movie news, is Jean-Luc Godard died. Oh, yeah. R.I.P. Um, not a young man. He was, I believe, in his 90s. 
But he made. I honestly didn't know he was still alive, but um, <laughs> he made films uh, pretty yeah, much up did. until he died. He's one yeah. of the few people of his era of his time that never really stopped. You know, if you look at a lot of his contemporaries from like the fifties and sixties, you know, the European art house boom kind of fades a little bit by the time you get to the mid to late seventies. And a lot of those people sort of quit or die or end up doing other things. And he was still pushing boundaries, making weird ass movies until he died. And the older he got, the more weird and challenging they got. You know, I don't, I haven't seen a lot of his movies. Uh, you know, I've seen Breathless, of course. Mm-hmm. A little backstory for the people who, who might not know. He was the, uh, one of the key figureheads of the French New Wave and one of the members of the Calle du Cinema who kind of set into motion their you know, thesis statement about what movies should be, what they should look like, how they should be represented by sort of experimenting with genre traditions that were popularized by Hollywood and really were like some of the first like deconstructionists of genre, like commenting on genre through making genre films, like things that basically every Gen X director kind of did flippantly in America. Like, there would be no Tarantino, there would be no Greg Araki, there would be no, I don't know, basically pick your flavor of crime movie guys from the 90s who were had, you know, quippy dialogue and stylized editing and characters that knew they were cool. Yeah. So, yeah, if nobody's ever seen any of his movies, Breathless is a good place to start. A Band Apart is also very good. That was the movie that Tarantino named his production company after. Uh, Contempt. You know, anything from that first, like, six or so movies he made is, is, is pretty great. Once you get into the 80s and 90s, it starts to get a little, a little bit more difficult. He's kind of doing more, like, film essays than films proper. Uh, but, um, you know, people still had a lot to write about him, even all the way up until just very recently. So RIP Goodard, the, uh, for the homeboy. Yeah. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit of movie news before we start talking about Pinocchio. Um, I have a couple stories here that we can react to the strangers remake trilogy, being headed by director Rennie Harlan. Uh, is this something anybody wants? I don't care. I mean, I feel like these are going to be... Like, the Stranger sequel, did anybody watch? You know, wasn't it like... It was like a direct-to-DVD... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like The Strangers is one of those things where it's like... It's pretty much a perfect movie... Um, it's terrifying. It's, it's one of the few movies that genuinely frightened the hell out of me. And anything kind of beyond that, I think is like, okay, I don't know. Like, like you can't, we don't need a whole, a, a fucking trilogy. Like what, what is there a trilogy about 
uh, you know, like home invasion. Unless it's sort of like, it could be kind of cool if it's like a different incident. If it's sort of like an anthology trilogy versus like a direct mm. thing. But that, you know, they're probably trying to franchise it because at this point, the movie has a reputation. So if something has a reputation, we might as well try to make it into a franchise. That's what I feel like this is. And so I don't care. Yeah, I think that's kind of what they're going for. I think the the attempt is probably something more like what The Purge managed to do. Yeah. You know, I mean, The Purge is, there's a lot more sort of sci-fi world building involved. But uh, I think they would like to expand it in that sort of way. Um, and then getting yeah, but I just I don't think it's something that needs to be expanded or or really can be beyond what it is. Like sort the beauty of the first movie is the simplicity of it. It is right. just you know it is just an impeccably done home invasion thriller. That's all it needs to be. If if we start trying to like expand lore or whatever, then that literally takes away from what was so frightening and cool about the first one. And then, yeah, anything else is just, why? I don't know. I don't care. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be some audience for it. I do think it's sort of the idea of expanding the lore or the the world of these characters or whatever does kind of betray what makes it effective in the first place. But you could say that about almost any horror movie with the sequels. Yeah, um, that's true. I mean, you know, the fear of the unknown is one of the most primal, universal human fears. And the more we, the more these movies explore, what, you know, the franchises or whatever, like it just draws a thing out and then dilutes it to the point where they reboot it in 15 to 20 years to get back to the roots. And it's just. We've yeah. seen the horror franchise cycle a thousand times, and I have no reason to indicate this is any different. Right, and I, th- I feel like this as a property has sort of missed the boat already. I also don't have a lot of faith in Rennie Harlan. Um, he's mostly known as kind of being an action schlock guy, a cliffhanger, Deep Blue Sea, Die Hard 2. Yeah, that, even more, I just don't. He did do, uh, I want to say it was like first film or one of his first films was a nightmare on elm street sequel either four or five so he does have that somewhere in the back canon of his his catalog but i mean still yeah uh nothing for me to get excited about um okay the next story i have here andrew callahan's channel 5 documentary on the january 6th riot has been purchased by hbo this uh, documentary was produced by Tim and Eric and their production company. Oh, interesting. But Channel 5 and, and Andrew Callahan has been a YouTube presence for like the last four years. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know a lot of YouTube stuff, but... Um, Have you never watched whole... any, of, any of his uh, little mini docs? No. Oh, I'm, I've never even heard of Channel 5 until that is a rabbit hole you need to go down. So Channel 5 started out as a as a uh, YouTube 
uh, channel called All Gas, No Breaks with Andrew Callahan. He was a young, self-produced rapper slash skater kid from Washington who basically took out a bunch of money and went out on his own hitchhiking across the country with a small camera crew of high school friends. And they would just go to the weirdest things they could. So they, you know, they did a lot of stuff like, you know, spring break in Miami or um, different like Trump rallies during election seasons or uh, Bigfoot hunters or furry conventions. These kinds of corners of American society. And he has this sort of satirical gonzo journalist style of radical listening where he sort of enters in very unassuming. He's like this. He looks like this young kid wearing a suit that's three sizes too big and, you know, just kind of talks to anybody who's willing to talk on camera and lets them sort of tell their own story. And then with editing and stuff, that's very Tim and Eric inspired, uh, creates this larger web or this larger narrative of weird America. Okay. That would I be, mean, that'd sure be the hard, high art way of describing what it is. They're just these 10 to 15 minute long documentaries that are a whole lot of fun to watch. Okay. Eventually uh, all gas, no breaks gets, uh, uh, rebranded as channel five because the company who helped fund him, uh, tried to, buy him out and kick him out of it. So he just started his own thing. And now it's uh, wildly successful, even without the original funders. I mean, good, good for him. Cool. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess the subject matter is so fresh still mm-hmm. that, that literally we don't even know what to do with it. Right. Like, you know, there still hasn't been any, meaningful prosecutions or meaningful action as far as January 6th is concerned. So the yeah, January 6th fucking last year, 2021, right? Um, it feels like so five it, years ago, but yeah. It, I, I don't know. I don't know if we can really get a clear view of the significance of that day yet, because our reaction to it helps sort of make it a historical event. And, and I just feel like, uh, I don't know, this could be, this could be one of those things that if certain people get their way, we talk about in five years and we're just like, Oh yeah, that was wild. Uh, huh. yeah. Remember when it was like, we could storm the Capitol. Like, you know what I mean? I don't know. Right. It's just, I, I feel like it's too fresh to have any kind of genuine perspective on it, it. It's sort of like the Woodstock 99, right? Like there's those documentaries about it coming out now mm-hmm. because there's been enough time to sort of process what was really happening. And I, I think it sounds interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely curious. I just, I'm very... I wonder how well something like that will date. Yeah, if it wasn't him being attached to it, if it wasn't it for it being associated with Channel 5, I would be less interested. To me, I would just put it on the heap of noise that is created about um, 
anything and everything that has to do with the political temperature at the time. You know, like every week we get another tell all from an ex Trump person or whatever. Yeah. Um, and there's, there, you know, there's, if you believe certain blue check marks on Twitter, there's so and such damning evidence that comes out every day. Right. The walls like, are always okay, closing then, in. Yeah. 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 And it's like, okay, well, at one, at some point, what makes me interested uh, in it, this, in as opposed to if I saw that this was like a CNN doc or something like that, um, or even the hearings, which have been weirdly effective, considering um, what's I, what, I guess. I, anyway, what makes me interested in this life. is I know it's going to be a boots on the ground perspective, and it's going to yeah, be I, I it's going to be more that- inside the actual event and it's going to yeah. be more from the perspective of the writers as opposed to like a traditional news documentary that would have some sort of moral framing mm-hmm. um i mean yeah, I, no, I, i'm i'm sure that that'll come through in in the editing or whatever there's going to be some sort of context and he's been working on this for a long time um Probably at least since January 6th of 2021. <laughs> well, right. I mean, I believe like when he first got the deal with Tim and Eric, they were just kind of covering the election and then sure. like the yeah. pandemic and, and all the, you know, all the stuff that was kind of happening. And then it sort of culminated to that point. Sure. So yeah. the documentary was finding itself as they were making it. Um, so I'm interested I'm interested mostly because I I like his approach. I like the content he makes. And I'm interested just to see what he does as a filmmaker with with an actual budget as opposed to, you know, these entertaining, sometimes insightful uh, YouTube docs that he does. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It sounds mildly interesting to me, but um, also... You and know, with it being it's HBO, it'll be more accessible. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Even with it just being on HBO, to me, just even though David Zaslav is doing the best he can to to totally destroy HBO's reputation, to to me, their product, I still tend to have a little bit more faith in than something like uh, Netflix or Hulu. For sure. So this was just reported on today. Uh, Blade Runner 2099 limited series ago at Amazon Ridley Scott will serve as the executive producer of the show from the shining girls creator, uh, Silka Louisa. Do you know anything about shining girls? Uh, no, I don't know anything about shining girls. Oh, it's an Apple um, TV thing. No. Okay. Never heard of it. I liked the last blade runner movie. Sure. I guess I'll give it a shot. I don't know. I don't need more Blade Runner in my life, but I guess I won't say no to it. Right. I don't know. I the the longer I I'm away from the Blade Runner sequel, the less I regard it. Uh, I haven't watched it in a while, but I I really liked it. Um, I mean, I thought it was cool, but mostly just aesthetically. Like, there's nothing about it on a, from a story perspective that really holds my attention or really brings me to to watch it again. It all kind of feels a little bit like a giant fan project. I, I have rewatched Blade Runner recently. This 
is vital and important and genre defying or genre defining. And then when I think of the Blade Runner sequel, I'm like, that was interesting. It doesn't okay, do so here's, much. For here's me. my thing when it comes to sequels, right? Because uh, unless unless it's something like like you know Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, right? Right. Obviously, sequels are sort of baked into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it's telling a larger story, like you know, it's 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 That's a, a trilogy. It's, it's a not saga. just one movie. Yeah. Like the story is not self defined, right? But when we take a movie that is self-defined, like, say, Blade Runner or The Matrix or whatever, um, and it's a movie that 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 is the culmination of a time and a, a feeling, it, to make a sequel out of that, the bar isn't set at what the original is because it, it can't it can't meet that like it, it can't, you know, like. The Matrix sequels cannot surpass the original because they just they don't have the same purpose, right? But that doesn't mean they can't be good. That doesn't mean they you know it. To me personally, a sequel doesn't need to outshine the original or necessarily even live up to the original because it's that is such a high bar to set. For me, the bar is just like. Is this movie itself good enough? You know what I mean? Like, and to me, like Blade Runner 2049 was, yeah, it was like, I enjoyed it. It is aesthetically cool. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's a decent cyberpunk genre movie. Uh, and that's all it, to me, it necessarily needs to be. So a limited series, like, am I clamoring for more Blade Runner? Not necessarily, and I am pretty much the target demo, but, you know, I'll give it a shot. Like, I am interested enough in the name that I'm, you know, I'll watch some trailers and I'll probably watch the pilot, but I'm not out of my mind excited for it. This is definitely a wait-and-see kind of property to me. The same way The Lord of the Rings series on amazon was and and has been and the the rebooted game of thrones with house of the dragon like if if they're gonna pump the time and money into something i just hope that it's quality that's all i have to ask is like is there a reason it has to be blade runner and not a named cyberpunk project well i think yeah that's what it comes down to for me it's like if you think of Blade Runner 20, was it 49? Was your, was yeah, uh, 2040. Yeah. Um, outside of the Deckard stuff that's in that movie, it could have been anything. It could have sure. just been, yeah. you know, it could have been a repurposed cyberpunk script that they called Blade Runner and whatever. Um, and I'm always down for more cyberpunk. And I, I would especially like to see it on in, done in a television serialized sort of way to see like what they keep doing with this world. And especially this will be even further in the future than, than either property has been. Um, um, There was also like a Blade Runner anime. Like, Oh, there's been a bunch of stuff. Yeah. There was also a, I think a series that a total recall series that took place in the world of Blade Runner or implied that the PK Dick universe is kind of one, universe okay. 
that's a lot, but um, right. I don't know about that. But but my I guess my point is there are if it is just sort of a cyberpunk project that they're naming Blade Runner because people are familiar with the name and the IP. There are worse things to do that to, right? Like, I'm not burnt out on Blade Runner the way I'm burnt out on, like, the Alien universe. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There, there hasn't been a slew of shitty sequels and and stuff uh, about Blade Runner that I'm just like, okay, fucking shut up about Blade Runner. So, to me, it's still obscure enough. I'll, I'll say, I guess, sure. I'd like to see the story get further away from the whole Deckard stuff and just kind of let yeah, it exist I feel on like its that's own. Kind of, I feel like that's kind of all we can get out of that, right? You know, I'm sure they'll mention his name at some point or have some Easter egg, but but yeah, we, we don't need to Skywalker Deckard. Right. And I think that the, the world's big enough uh, and the technology is interesting enough that we can be in different locations and, you know, yeah, I, different I, crime settings, whatever, kind of play around with that sort of neo-noir aesthetic uh, yeah, combined play. with uh, cyberpunk and, and try and come up with singular interesting stories. Totally. I, I think there is there is potential there. Uh, I, where I get nervous is the Ridley Scott's name is attached to it, because I just don't have a lot of faith in him at this point. I wish I knew more about that uh, that series that the showrunner is attached to, The Shining Girls. So that's on Apple. Maybe I'll watch a couple episodes of that to kind of get a better idea. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I have for movie news. We put it off long enough. Let's go ahead and talk about Pinocchio. All right. Uh, on Disney Plus, this is one of three Pinocchio movies that comes out this year. Yeah, uh, and I was at um, D23 last weekend, and we didn't even really talk about this, but um, uh, get ready for more... Live action remakes from Disney. Yeah, I'm very not interested in this trend going into this movie. So that is, uh, but yeah. I will say before we, you know, start talking about it, unlike a lot of these, Pinocchio is a story that is not as uniquely Disney as a lot of the other ones are. And they're all kind of based on. Hans Christian Andersen or, you know, whatever folktale from wherever uh, that's been Disneyized. But Pinocchio has been adapted well, this- and readapted and readapted and readapted a lot. And it, it's kind of more of a archetype than something like Beauty and the Beast, which well, has also- a lot more expectations narratively. When... Pinocchio the cartoon came out right Disney I mean yeah Disney has always kind of done you know they've, they've done these retellings in their particular style um, but you know the, the original was before before the sort of Disney renaissance when everything was expected to be adaptable into a Broadway musical you know what I mean like mm-hmm. 
I, I feel like they stick pretty true to the original fairy tale and in ways that later Disney, they get to take a little bit more um, creative freedom with, right? Sure, yeah. Like Little Mermaid, which is pretty much a completely separate entity from the original Hans Christian Andersen story. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And So why don't you describe, for whoever might not know... What is what's Pinocchio, Keith? What's so, this Pinocchio? Um, so yeah, this is a live action remake of a Disney classic cartoon. It is about Geppetto is this lonely widower uh, who carves a, a boy out of wood, a, a puppet, serve as a, a surrogate family uh, as he's slowly losing his mind in solitude. <laughs> he makes a wish that. Pinocchio could be a real boy. A uh, blue fairy comes and grants this wish to a certain extent. There's only so much the magic can do, and uh, Pinocchio has to find out what a real boy is on his own. The, the fairy can give the wooden boy life, but to become a real boy, he has to, he, he has to learn what that is. Along the way, uh, he is given an external conscience by the name of Jiminy Cricket, Tiny Cricket, who whispers in his ear and, and guides him. He plans on going to school like his father wishes and gets intercepted uh, by a talking fox named Honest John. Um, and adventures ensue. Suffice it to say, he doesn't make it to school. Uh, instead, he he ends up in a road show. He ends up on Pleasure Island, uh, and he ends up being chased by a giant whale monster. Um, yeah, that's that's Pinocchio. Yep, Tom Hanks plays Geppetto in this version. Uh, Jiminy Cricket is voiced by Joseph Gordon-Levitt for some reason, and oh, yeah. uh, Cynthia Erivo. Uh, plays the Blue Fairy. Keegan-Michael Key continues his winning streak post-Key and Peel as the voice of Honest John. Um, we get a lot of uh, side players. A few more characters uh, than were the, in the original. Um, yeah, a couple and extra a few songs, new numbers, a few more songs uh, enter in here by these new characters. But uh, what did you think? I, I mean, man, it's just like all of these things. It's like, it's sure, it has some moments sometimes, but it it does not capture the magic of the Disney cartoon. Uh, it it makes me wonder what was the last good Robert Zemeckis movie, uh, because at some point he fell into a CGI fetish hard. Mm. Um, to, to the point where it disconnects with reality. I mean, I don't know. I thought Cynthia Revo was really good at the Blue Fairy. She gets to sing the one song, uh, When You Wish Upon a Star, and she nails that. That You know, I don't know what else there is to say. There's a lot of stuff happening. Uh, <laughs> I don't understand Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Jiminy Cricket at all. Like, they definitely... Let Tom Hanks be fucking Jiminy Cricket. Like, they need someone folksy and, like, I don't know. That was 
such a bizarre choice. But then that's kind of what this whole movie is. Is like we're just trying to carbon copy the cartoon, but without the heart. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that's, that wishes that's... it could be a real movie. Uh, yeah. I don't actually care about this at all. I think it's garbage, but I do want to request a couple things from you. Okay. Um, I want your impression of Joseph Gordon-Levin's impression of Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> okay. Oh, this is hard because I feel like I could do a better <laughs> Jiminy Cricket. Now, but you're not uh, doing so your Jiminy Cricket. You're no, doing I'm, his. I'm doing <laughs> just Gordon-Levin. Uh, okay. Well, oh boy. I'm Jiminy Cricket, and I'm here to be your conscience. Uh, uh, it's very hard to guide a puppet into being a real boy. It, I don't even know if that's... I think yeah, it's, it's so that, weird. I think that sounds, uh, it sounds a little too naturalistic, like you're trying to... He somehow well, overacts it as a, as a cartoon bug. Yeah, and, I mean... You need to throw in a few more emphatic Pinocchio. Pinocchio, yeah, it, <laughs> I, it's such a bizarre performance because it's it feels like a caricature, but it and it's also like I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but he's always, you know, he in my mind he's kind of like a Brian Gosling, right? Where he's a s- strong lead, but he's not like a character guy, you know, like not particularly. No matter no. what he does, he's gonna have that kind of street smart Brooklyn kid kind of thing going on. You know what I mean? Mm. And that doesn't work for a fucking folksy cricket. <laughs> Who doesn't I, I don't even... know. Like, right. Can we, can you give me a, a, an honest John as portrayed by Keegan Michael Key? <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't hate him as much as you seemed to, but I'll, I, I do know what you're talking about. Well, let's see here. Uh, is there a, 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 ooh, a little, oh, there is a puppet with no strings that I can sell off. Oh, good. Look at that. The exact thing that I was talking about happened. Now let's exploit it. <laughs> that one was much closer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I will say I liked the design of Honest John for all the weird uncanny valley CGI. I thought he actually looked good. Uh, I I really liked the weird five finger glove thing that there was a lot in the character design that I thought really worked, but the voice did not sync up uh, with Keegan-Michael Key. Well, I couldn't just... There's certain characters, those those two in particular, knowing who they were going in, I can't not see them in a recording booth with headphones on exactly. doing whatever the fuck they were directed to do. Yeah, like, don't give me famous people. Give me voice, voice actors. actors. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I, I don't love the design. Um, I mean, it, it looks like a talking fox. In some weird CGI land that coexists with some real characters. What I think is interesting is in a cartoon, a talking fox and a goofy cat are fine, right? It doesn't... Yeah, we have, no, we have no problem because we're in Disney logic. Yeah, we're in a, we're in a cartoon. But in live action, 
It makes when no goddamn it's sense. It's a CGI fox walking down the road, and everybody else is a normal human person. That's weird. Yeah, like they even uh, but they I, even I, bring I, attention to the fact when uh, Pinocchio tries to go to school, and the teacher's like, "We don't teach puppets or whatever the fuck," and kicks him out. Yeah, but and then he's not like, "Oh my god, a fox <laughs> and a cape." And a cat walking around, yeah, in homeless people clothes, uh, talking. For some reason, though. I I would much rather just Keegan-Michael Key just just be be himself in a costume. I didn't hate that. I don't know. I didn't hate it. There's something weird about it that I honestly think the rest of the movie could have used a little bit more of that weirdness. Not, I mean, here's the thing. There's a lot of... CGI for the sake of CGI, but there's not a lot of choices. You know what I mean? And right. to me, that was at least a choice. That was at least like a, uh, I don't know. There, there was something about that that did not bother me. Um, the only choices that, that seemed definitive to me on like a screenplay level or on a conceptual level anyway, is the choice to add the other puppet love interest uh, or the marionette love interest when he's uh, being carted away to be a performer. Um, sure, yeah. And her number that they add in there, which doesn't really fit in with the story. Like any of these Disney remakes, well, whenever they go off track, it is glaringly obvious yeah, when they go well, off track because the pacing just gets like gummed up for that five minutes. And the the music doesn't fit the rest of the music. It doesn't. It just does not feel of a piece. It feels like we're gonna get a modern songwriter to write a very modern song and shove it in in a yeah. in a weird place where it does not belong. Yeah, I believe there's a there's a another character at another point. I forget which one that they add. Uh, the the coachman uh, with Luke Evans. Yes, which I didn't song. dislike as much, but was, well, that one felt that one was less, um, I would say, obvious. And you know, right. I'm I'm always down for a good villain song, sure. Um, but okay, so here's here's my my problem. Besides just this movie, you know, being a soulless rewash of the original cartoon. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go as hard as the cartoon, right? And, and mm-hmm. I think maybe that's why I liked Honest John because there was something weird and and just off and sort of sinister about him. Um, I think it would have been better with a different voice actor, but uh, whatever. You know, when they go to the the island of pleasure or whatever, Pleasure Island, uh, as it's also known, yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, they made a point out of the fact that, oh, we're just drinking root beer, gosh golly, right. which is like, okay. They cleaned it kids up. Kids can drink root beer, like, they're, you know, it just felt so sanitized, and the part when they turn into donkeys in the cartoon, you know, and as a, as a kid, I'm sure I remember this being much scarier than it actually is, but it's nightmarish. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, what the fuck is happening? And in this, it's just like, oh, well, now they turn into donkeys because that's what happens. Right. And it becomes this big, like, kind of CGI visual gag that's not. Yeah. And that's just, that's kind of everything. Disarming in this movie at all. Like, 
Yeah. Is like, well, now this happens because this happens. For me, there was two big tests on whether or not this movie works. And that was Pleasure Island and The Whale. Those yeah, are like those are the fail. two big spectacles to where you could actually yeah, do something yeah. in live action that you can't do in animation. Um, and again, the whale in the cartoon is scary. Like even that ride at Disneyland mm-hmm. where you like go through his mouth. I still am like a little like Ugh. I don't. I, it's it's scary. There there's something, and it's just a whale. Mm-hmm. You know, in this they decided to make it like a sea monster and he's got these like tentacles that it's just for no reason whatsoever it it feels the whole thing feels built by committee and that whale is yeah, a perfect like representation of that it's like they couldn't decide is well let's do let's make it like a like a squid or a 20,000 Leagues under the sea kind of creature. No, let's keep no. it a whale, but oh, what if we do both? Make it a whale, but make it the scariest fucking whale you've ever seen. Right, Given and also there's... Scars. The, in and- the way that the story, the, the weird cosmetic choices, they decide to move around the pieces of the narrative to where when Pinocchio is swallowed by the whale, he doesn't discover Geppetto in there. There's like this whole sequence leading up to them being devoured. It kind of, I don't know, there's something less bothersome or less emotional about that. Like well, it's, that, That's what I mean. Because they, like wanted to have, they wanted to have more Geppetto in this because he's their big star. But it's, That's what I'm uh, saying. Have fucking Tom Hanks be Jiminy Cricket. He is folksy. He's charming. He, you know, give let him do a weird voice. Sure. And it doesn't need to be just like the fucking cartoon. It's too similar to justify its own existence but in every way that it changes doesn't take a big enough swing we're you're literally just describing every single one of these yeah remakes is because but this this one's worse though and i don't know why i mean there's ones i I don't really like any of them i i kind of like the jungle book one maybe that one was the most like experimental of some of these feels so boilerplate it it just feels shit out right well i mean it's it's clearly a cash grab it's clearly done for cynical reasons but i don't know you you, you expect like robert zemeckis's involvement or something and there's all this weird like self-referential no, no. stuff here's the thing i once i heard robert zemeckis was involved i was like oh okay this is gonna be a weird cgi face fest i i don't I can't. What was the last good movie he made? I would estimate Flight was the last movie he did that I thought was halfway decent. Okay. I didn't see The Walk. I was kind of curious about that. Which is why uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt is in this movie, by the way, because they met on the set of The Walk. Sure. He His performance is emblematic of the whole thing, it's sort of a microcosm of the whole thing, right? We've got this CGI cricket that is over-enunciating and overly trying to capture the voice of this thing of a cartoon. that existed, yeah, yeah, 70 years ago. Do it, just, I don't know, just make a movie. I don't, and and I, don't I have know. to say, Benjamin Evan Ainsworth, who does a voice of Pinocchio in this, he sounds a lot like the the original animated film, I mean, it's close, 
but there's something about it, the tenor or the timbre or something that's, we're in like Caillou annoying territory. Um, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't necessarily have a problem with that. I, you know, he's a kid doing a kid's voice. I, sure. I don't root for I, this I character know. the same way I root for the, the animated film. And there's maybe, well, they, maybe is there something about like the cheap ADR of 1940 animation studio level recording equipment that that kind of lets it all blend in a certain way I, on a I sonic level where here it just it's it's shrieky and annoying the thing to me is when when you have a cartoon right uh-huh like the original cartoon everything is of a piece everything is it feels like it's in the same world and, and so it becomes more believable right? because everything is designed on the same level. Whereas this, you have design elements that are all over the place. You have some stuff that's trying to look like the cartoon. And then you have some stuff that's trying to render a realistic looking Fox face. And then you have some elements that give Pinocchio a cartoon face that matches the cartoon face. Exactly. And then you've got, uh, Tom Hanks doing this very broad performance, and then you've got this wall of clocks that's only just pure Disney Easter eggs. So it's just everything feels like this sort of patchwork modge podge of design. So mm. nothing works together. So it can it can't ever feel real. So the stakes never feel real. The scary parts are never scary the emotional parts are never emotional because it all just feels like bullshit. Yeah. That pretty much sums up my, my feelings on it. If I'm to find any positives in it, um, I do like that they went with the direction for Pinocchio himself to just make him look like the design from the animated cartoon, as opposed to like weird Jonathan Taylor Thomas as a, as a CGI boy with wood grain face, um, that sure. nightmare. Yeah. I think this. Yeah. I think doing it the way they did. He's a puppet. It, it looks fine, and it's also more endearing to have like big Disney eyes and and that kind of stuff. On a v- technical level, purely on a technical level, um, not all the CGI is great, but the the uh, lighting schemes that uh, created through effects is pretty advanced. Um, but I'm really looking for something to like here. Yeah, I I just kind of nothing to this movie. I was like, it's just whatever. I don't know. This is pretty bad for me. I, I'm giving it a D. I think that's the best I can do for it. Just on those few elements that I said were kind of impressive on a technical level, but um, maybe I'm just feeling more and more fatigued by the 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 uh, the anim the Disney animated live action in air quotes remake. Um, yeah, I definitely. But I feel like even time. like Aladdin, which I also did not like, at least like with that, there was kind of a comedy element I could get into. Uh, and a Broadway element. And I don't know. This, I felt like, because it's more 
because it's simpler and smaller and more archetypal, I felt like they should have been able to nail this easier, not make it whatever this is. Yeah, I I think I'll give this a D plus because it's on Disney Plus, and <laughs> so I didn't have to spend money to see it in theaters, and uh, right. and I'm cute that way. Uh, so D plus. That's that's what it is. I will say, uh, speaking of Pleasure Island and how it needed to be more sinister and weird and creepy, I do think that Luke Evans actually turns out a pretty decent performance because he he gets what that part of the story is supposed to be and and does give us a pretty sinister, weird thing. It's just way too little and way too late. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking root beer. I hate that it was root beer. That made me so mad. Like, just don't name it. Just don't name it. (laughs) Just, like, imply... I get that you're not going to have kids smoking cigars, sure. But just let him be drinking a... a, a Whatever. Anyway. But he, like, kind of kept pushing all the, like, stuff on them. Right. uh, I was like, he's a good enough actor that he could make that little moment work. Uh, you kind of the way we were talking about how his added song wasn't as weird and unnecessary. Didn't feel as out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. He, he. So I also thought that Giuseppe Battison, who played Stromboli, um, yeah, he he felt like a real life cartoon in the way the whole movie should have. Yeah, exactly. He yeah. kind of he and, kind of and, like blended into the into the aesthetics as opposed to just another thing sort of cut and pasted into it yes absolutely what's up listeners? force five is a show about movie related top five lists hosted by me blacklist screenwriter and ex-video store cinephile jason kleberg i have a new guest on each week and the guest gets to pick the topic past guests have included film directors screenwriters actors critics comedians rappers artists and other podcasters love or hate our picks you're guaranteed to walk away thinking what would be on my list Search Force 5 wherever you get your pods or head to force5podcast.com. All right, uh, let's go ahead and get into the streaming homework. This is the romantic comedy I Want You Back, which came out earlier this year in 2022. Um, This is directed by Jason Orley, and it is written by Isaac Aptaker. And Elizabeth Berger uh, stars Charlie Day and Jenny Slate. Charlie Day has been dating his girlfriend, uh, played by Gina Rodriguez, and she sort of sort of drops on him on a on a whim after six years of being together that she's no longer interested, and he she thinks that he's boring and he's kind of stuck in a rut in this like uh, corporate job. Uh, and she wants to sort of explore things, so she breaks it off with him. Jenny Slate feels very secure in her relationship with Noah, played by Scott Eastwood. And he decides to break it off with her uh, because he's become interested in somebody else. Uh, a woman who's running a vegan pie shop. And Yeah, the most romantic comedy profession a woman can have. Kind of. I mean, those are more frequent than they used to be. Those those kind of establishments. Um, sure, but how often are they owned by, uh, you know, late 20-something? 
uh, in New York and L.A. pretty often. Uh, so Emma and Peter, our lead characters played by Jenny Slate and Charlie Day, uh, meet in a stairwell uh, crying about their exes. Uh, they go out to karaoke. They share a little bit more information with each other. They go on to Instagram and social media to see what their exes are up to or who they're dating and uh, drunkenly decide to hatch a plan to work on reconnaissance for the other party to help break up their current relationships so that they can get back together with their exes. Uh, And if you've seen enough romantic comedies in your life, you kind of know how the movie math adds up here. Um, But I will say that it doesn't... It doesn't exactly go like one of these type of stories would would have in like 1998 or two like 2002 like the you know the height of this kind of premise driven romantic comedy um, takes a lot of its cues from stuff from that time particularly of the, uh, the how to lose a guy in ten days or. Uh, uh, you got mail or these kind of hidden identity or hidden agenda of rom-coms and uh, adds a few more kinks and specific characteristics with these leads that makes it for me, at least felt a little bit more self-aware of these tropes than the movies they're kind of riffing on. But what did you think? Uh, yes and no. I So, I actually genuinely liked this movie. I think it's pretty charming. It's pretty funny. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, genuinely, Jenny Slate and Charlie Day have really good chemistry. And I think a lot of the movie... I think this movie struggles with the... Sort of the genre stuff a little bit. Uh, like... The meet cute is kind feels kind of forced, and the confrontation at the end feels kind of weird and forced. Like, I I don't think it's great at the the things that need to come together to make the movie happen, and then the things that need to wrap up to give us that warm feeling at the end of it. I I, I feel like this movie actually kind of struggled with those parts, but I think it makes up for it in. The characters feeling, you know, pretty... The characters are pretty fun and likable. And kind of the whole second act with all the complications gets pretty fun. And the situations... Those situations play out in some, you know, in amusing ways that Mm. you would kind of hope for. Um, But yeah, I I think on just, like, some... there are some moments that are kind of awkward and kind of fumbling a little bit, um, but the rest of the movie makes up for that. I get what you're saying. I to me, there's a point in the film where a well, more I, I, confident, a more well before you say, a more confident okay. screenwriter would have said, "Okay, here we are. This is the logical end of this story." And looking at where these characters ended up and how they ended up there, um, instead of just going with the sitcom ending that a lot of these typically do. 
But the movie then decides, uh, we can't do that. That's just too big of a bummer. Let's yeah. we'll we'll figure it out. But you know, we'll at least acknowledge that we're running into a cliche. Um, yeah, but-, but I actually kind of liked when I thought that they were going to kind of do something there, and I'm you know being vague on purpose. But yeah, when I when I kind of thought like. What the whole audience is thinking is like, okay, but if this works, like, or doesn't work, like, how would this, you know, logically play out? Play out because too many of these characters know each other now. Um, and when it gets to that point, I was like, whoa, okay, they're actually just going to let this be a bummer ending. And I was kind of here for it. And then... And I then it, it it keeps going, and I ultimately accept it because sure. I like yeah, these characters I and I, I like the genre. But but it, yeah, but yes, and, and I, I liked, understand. Yeah, I and I liked I liked these characters enough that I wanted them to have a happy ending. You know, so I I was like, oh, all right, you know, it, it was one of those things where I kind of rolled my eyes and I was like, sure, why not? Mm-hmm. But what I'm talking about specifically is like. The scene where they're in the stairwell Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, they're just kind of, they both had to like take a moment from their jobs to go cry. Right. That's funny. Um, Both of those were funny moments and, and situations that got them there. But once we have these characters meeting for the first time, you know, it's sort of this contrivance to get them to talk. It's like, a right. Oh, well, do you want to talk about it? It it just is like, it it felt a little forced and weird. Uh, uh, Just that scene where he's like, you know, I decided I was going to get cigarettes to smoke. Uh, I don't know. Just that whole exchange, I was kind of like, oh, okay, here we go. Uh, Yeah, you you could definitely feel the strain in trying to break story. Once they hit the karaoke and 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 start having conversations and just the once the sort of plot of it relaxes one you know and we just get to watch these characters interact it's a lot of fun mm-hmm. you know because they they bounce off each other and like i said they have really good chemistry uh surprisingly i thought this was gonna be like oh we just got two funny people and they're just gonna kind of be funny in their own separate ways and if they add up together cool um well i think both of them are are extremely talented and they have unique comedic voices but they're also i think they're both pretty adept at i would imagine improv i don't know how much of this is improvised or not sure it feels pretty pretty script oriented but i think I mean, if if this was the 1998 version and you just had two very good looking actors who were not even actually comedians, you know, yeah. if this was like, oh, oh, absolutely. If this was Kate Hudson and I don't know, fucking Noah Wiley from ER, yeah, then it, then exactly. it, it would just be interminably boring. But but. Because so, you have very funny and interesting people in the leads who happen to who are good enough comedians to know how to be funny together and how to create and push scene. But my point is that 
we have seen, you know, we have seen Charlie Day do movies that aren't necessarily so good and don't necessarily lean on his strengths. And we've seen mm-hmm. the same from Jenny Slate. Uh, I, I love them both. I think they're both great. Exa- all these things you're saying, but they have done some stuff that does not lend towards their strengths as much as it should. Uh, and I'm just saying I was pleasantly surprised that this did that, that this let them be characters and let them be uh, a little unlikable, not too much. So, you know, not so much that it loses the audience, but like they could be weird. They could have, you know, they could play characters. So I'm just saying I, I appreciated that the director or the scriptwriter or whoever knew enough to kind of get out of the way and let them do their jobs. No, correct. I think we've seen I think them. I think Jason Orley does deserve some credit to his his ability to handle scene work. Yeah. Uh, I, and not overblock it or over edit it and and if there is something organic that funny happening with them to let it play itself out as opposed to, you know, lock it in to just these to sitcom like punctuation marks. Yeah. And, and, you know, I agree. Like the, the scenes are, they're directed, these fun situations that the, the direction knows to just sort of get out of the way of Mm -hmm. and let it play out. And, uh, yeah. And I, I think the movie generally does that very well. It it was just sort of the beginning where the character, you know, the meet cute moment felt very forced and then sort of the confrontation at the end felt a little forced to me as well. And and I felt like that could have played out a little more naturally and, and just a little more smoothly. Yeah, I agree. There's, I mean, the movie is always sort of at war with, with itself of how much. Yeah, like how, how much are we. There's like a traditional into- romantic comedy and uh edgier indie film sort of jockeying for position all the time in this movie. There's a bit of a tension between those two things. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. But I will say it it never becomes more than what I'm willing to accept. No, it never becomes a problem. Characters are likable enough. The script is funny enough. Uh, You know, I've seen worse romantic comedies that I've enjoyed. So I, I did enjoy it quite a bit, actually. I, I'm getting a little critical on it, um, but I actually thought it was a lot of fun. So I agree. And actually, I think, you know, Scott Eastwood, this is some of the best stuff I've seen from him. Um, Yeah, but again, it, it's I think it's a matter of good casting. Like, they know to where to lean on him for, like... Right. Well, he, there's even so a if this was the nineteen, out. if this was the nineteen ninety eight version, he, he um, Gina Rodriguez and Scott Eastwood would have been the leads, and uh, Jenny Slate and Charlie Day would be the the messy exes that we don't want to see on screen as much. Yeah. Um, and that would be the much more boring movie to watch, uh, as as opposed to letting those two characters be what they are on screen and play into type, but they're but they also are augmenting what they can do comedically by their role with these more comedically gifted actors. 
Yeah, exactly. And I, I think the movie's self-aware enough that it knows, it kind of knows the enough of the traps of the genre that it's able to, to sort of dance around them pretty well for the most part. Yeah, uh, in, we even get a, or, a sequence in the middle with... Uh, with uh, Pete Davidson, um, yeah, where he's he's great. He's exactly what you need Pete, Pete Davidson to be. Right. It, it makes sense in the context of the movie, and it's it's sort of absurd. The movie almost overextends the the naturalism that other yeah. parts of the movie uh, live in. Um, it is the most kind of sketchy feeling of of the rest of it, but. It even kind of works here, which which totally. is sort of it, surprising. It, I think the the whole movie is kind of trying to dance that fine line between we want to make an earnest romantic comedy, but we don't want it to suck. So we're going to kind of make fun of the things that suck about romantic comedies, but it it never it never goes full meta. It never goes yeah. fully. We're gonna deconstruct this it doesn't betray the genre yeah and i i kind of appreciate that it it kind of in ways uh you know gave me uh, like wedding singer vibes where it's like it's playing to all of these actors strengths and there's some contrivances but i'll allow it because it's fun yeah, this one's Maybe. a little under the radar. You know, this came out on a streamer. It's probably the only way a movie like this can come out nowadays. Um, yeah. But I, I recommend it. I actually think it's funny, and it, it's sweet, but not saccharine. I agree. I agree with all of that. I uh, I enjoyed it, and I don't mind the occasional romantic comedy in my life, and I would I just ask that they be watchable and this is watchable plus this is fun all right that is the episode next week for the streaming homework we will be talking about or actually i'll let you announce it this is your pick next week uh yeah i picked perfect blue which is uh streaming on shutter right now it's um an anime that uh, uh anime horror film it's a psychological thriller i think uh that doesn't get streamed a lot so i'm i'm excited that it's available right now i've heard a lot about it we'll be talking about that if anybody has anything to say about anything else we've talked about on this episode or previous you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com follow us on instagram and twitter at mcguffinpod um, you can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash MacGuffinPod to see when new episodes go up. Be sure to leave a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on iTunes or Spotify or Player.fm, Pocket Cast, uh, Google Podcasts, whichever podcatcher app you use to listen to us on. And if you want to read my movie reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal, you can Google those by going to Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment, and that'll take you to the page where they're archived. You can also follow me individually on Twitter and on Instagram at VC Cassidy. And be sure to read the other reviews and articles written by the rest of the MacGuffin staff 
at mcguff.in. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, I also uh, do a uh, improv show called Improv versus Stand Up uh, at Mockingbird Improv. You can follow at Mockingbird Improv and at Improv versus Stand Up uh, on Instagram for uh, updates on those. Okay, and that is the episode. I got no strings to hold me down. Bye.